Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That is our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. They call me Ben. Fun fact, Noel, uh, neither of us speak the Lithuanian language. It's true. I did try it for about a half an hour on Duolingo, and I am .0001236 repeating proficient. Awesome, dude. Congratulations. And, and you know, which means, today's... which means I can pronounce the word of the day. That's, that's right, the best that I right. can offer. Yeah. Can Ignatia. Uh, yes, we'll sir. get, we'll get to, we'll get to what this means. We want to shout out any, uh, Lithuanian ridiculous historians in the audience today because just a little more than a month ago, Lithuania celebrated something called Can Ignatia Diana. The Day of the Book Smugglers. And that's kind of what this episode is about. It's so interesting the way history works, because yes, the three of us don't ourselves speak uh, the Lithuanian language with fluency, but if things had gone just a little bit differently, nobody would be speaking this language today. And it's there's an amazing tale of the struggle for literacy and the struggle for culture here. And I don't know about you guys, but after I was after I caught up with this and learned this story, which was totally new to me, I was gassed. I was inspired. I loved nerd fights. Well, yeah, and I think we're all, I mean, we're, we're not we're not fans of book bands uh, as a thing, but stories of book bands are always interesting because it usually points to a power struggle. Anytime there's like a uh, desire to kind of tamp down on information, it means that some ruling power is losing their grasp on control. And it's always an interesting tipping point because as we know, Usually when you do things like that, like say, oh, no, we can't have these books around anymore. Let's burn them all. There's usually a backlash uh, of some kind or other. And the one in today's story is particularly interesting and uh, creative. Yes, agreed. This is crime for the greater good. We hope that you will agree with that assessment by the end of today's story. Let's maybe uh, let's lay, get the lay of the land here. So this has Russia involved uh, during this time. We're talking about Tsarist Russia, Russia dominated by the Tsar system. They had taken control of a place called Lithuania after the Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania, was divided and annexed. Like Prussia, Austria, and Russia all came in and they split up this area in 1795. If you were living in Lithuania at this time, the majority of your country fell under the control of Russia, who had absolutely zero respect for Lithuanians as a people or culture. 
Yeah, and we know that, you know, oftentimes conquering powers, uh, when they take their cut, they like the new subjects under their rule to fall in line with their way of life, which includes, of course, their religion. And Tsarist Russia, I believe, would fall under Russian orthodoxy. But historically, Lithuanians practiced Roman Catholicism. This was not a, uh, a good thing in the eyes of their new rulers. They saw it as a potential threat to their supremacy. Uh, we see this all the time. Any conquering forces coming in, the first thing they do is try to convert, uh, by force usually, um, the people under their rule to their religion. So this is exactly what Russia did. The folks in power, they did it very much with an iron fist by demolishing uh, churches or chapels, rather. They also prohibited construction of certain types of shrines. And these were structures that were all over the place. Apparently, they were around two shrines per kilometer there in Lithuania. And another thing that happens in these situations, especially when uh, folks are overtaken by force, is they, they don't want to do that thing. <laughs> it's going to take a lot to force this, and usually historically it takes a very long time and results in a lot of death and chaos and bloodshed. So understandably, the Lithuanian people wanted to hold on to their own culture. And they had a university system there. This is a very learned people and a lot of scholars uh, specializing in the study of this religion, their faith and their history uh, and culture. So these university systems, they essentially organized, uh, the students rather, organized um, along with the clergy, and they led a, a pretty violent uprising in 1831 against the Russian occupiers. And it was initially a pretty small scale kind of thing because Lithuania had a very small population of only around a million people. By the way, incredible Atlas Obscura article. Always love their work. Uh, if you want to check out the article by Michael Waters from July 19th to 2017, the 19th century Lithuanians who smuggled books to save their language. Sort of uh, giving you a little bit of a taste of what's to come here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to I want to go back to this because I'm a big fan of contextualizing history. So these wayside shrines will be familiar to people who are history buffs in this area. But the best <laughs> one of the best comparisons I could think of is Starbucks in the U.S. Imagine if uh, Starbucks had religious significance to people, which they may for some big coffee fans. Imagine if some foreign power came in and demolished every Starbucks. That's how common these things were. So this was very much a, an attack on this culture, and the resistance went on for such a long time. We talked about the 1831 university student resistance, which stands out because, like you said, most resistance was operating on a pretty small scale, and that was kind of right. an exception. But if you fast forward about three decades, you see another massive insurrection. And this is the backlash of this is what leads to the crackdown on the Lithuanian language itself. The war shifts to become a war on hearts, minds, culture, and language. I want to shout out the Vintage News, this awesome, awesome article by E.L. Hamilton in the 19th century, Lithuanian smuggled books in an act of rebellion against Russian control. Here's what happens before. Here's why these books book smugglers exist. 1863, like I say, this is the biggest resistance movement. 66,000 Lithuanians out of a population of around a million from all walks of life, clergy, merchants, serfs, you know, like small-scale agricultural folks, they launch an armed rebellion and that rebellion is crushed. Thousands of people are dead. Thousands are exiled to Siberia, which at this time is pretty much a death sentence as well. And then Tsar Alexander II says, screw you guys. We're going to crack down on this. We're going to, what they wanted to do is Russify the Lithuanian population, real word, to make things more Russian, Russify, and uh, remove its history. So like, you know, remove the Catholic Church. We want to issue, we being Tsar Alexander II, want to issue temporary rules for state junior schools of what they call the Northwestern Cry. And this was a law against children 
speaking or reading Lithuanian in school. You could only read Russian. As you can imagine, this is really difficult for kids who are, you know, already pretty far along in the education process, and now they have to learn a new language. This is, uh, and it even gets worse the next year. They're like, no, no Lithuanian language in print ever. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you, you see these kinds of things throughout history and you wonder, it's like, are you not able to read the room? I mean, this is not going to end well, like short of just like outright genocide. You know, I mean, it's it's just not very functional. You know, these these, these folks have their own language. They have their own culture uh, short of just wiping them out and starting from scratch. It's very uh, unlikely that there's going to be a mass, you know, falling in line and just a wiping the slate clean of all of this stuff. I mean, this is how human beings cling to language and culture. In history. Um, so I just always am a little bit uh, wondering. I, mean, I guess it's just a matter of when you're a supreme leader, you guess you can do whatever you want and no one really questions you. And people just say, yeah, it's a great idea. That'll totally work. But as we know, because these small scale, even the big ones, small scale, 66,000, pretty small scale um, compared to the, the Russian military might. You really can't fight the power here. You have to kind of resort to more uh, creative kind of sneaky uh, means. So this ban on the Lithuanian press was essentially an attempt to completely erase their language and their culture and replace it with uh, that of, of, of Mother Russia. Lithuanian kids were also supposed to attend state schools where they'd learn the Cyrillic alphabet, which, by the way, I mean, despite Russia being a pretty cruel and uh, intense uh, occupier in the situation, I do think that the Cyrillic alphabet is one of the most beautiful printed languages I've ever seen. It's really, really cool looking. But also, I imagine, very, very complex and difficult to learn from scratch. So a lot of historical reports from the time kind of indicated mainly what I was surprised by, which is that the Russian rulers didn't really think this would be that big a deal to institute this ban. It's like, come on, Russians, great. They, they think their alphabet's beautiful, too. This will be a great opportunity for them to, you know, start anew uh, under a new, uh, a new culture and a new language. But... Uh, like I also said, and I think everyone probably pretty easily can see how this is the case. This is not something they were willing to just give up without a huge fight. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Cement Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. 
I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it so uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Oh, yeah. Yeah. it's It has a similar assumptions as the more recent assumptions about in the invasion of Ukraine. You can't think that people will just say they have no nationality or cultural identity because you told them they didn't. Actually, that's something that people will go to the mat for. Throughout history, we see this happen. And the Lithuanian I guess you can call them the intelligentsia, you know, the university folks, the clergy, so on. They're not going out without a fight. And they figure out, first, they figure out a, a loophole, a very obvious loophole. Russia is has annexed and is occupying this area so they can prevent printing presses in this country from making stuff in Lithuanian, but they can't do anything for books printed in foreign lands. And so these guys get together and start printing things in other countries, and then they smuggle them into Lithuania. This is the rise of the Kenegnasi, uh, or pardon my Lithuanian here, book carriers would be the translation. They transported books across the border, and then they functioned as an underground distribution service to get them to Lithuanian children, to get them to other cities and villages. And at first, it was a cottage industry. These guys were lone wolves. They were walking alone, literally carrying books in sacks, like some kind of reading rainbow Santa Claus, or they were in covered wagons and they had these way stations where they would drop these books off. Of course, they were traveling by cover of night and they were also traveling when the weather was bad, particularly during winter blizzards, because that's when guards and Russian authorities would be most likely to, you know, stay in and stay warm. Sure. I mean, it reminds me of like, you know, in, in Robin Hood, uh, the Disney cartoon, the cartoon Fox Robin Hood dresses up as a beggar, you know, to kind of like be incognito and and, and kind of slide under the radar. That was a, a big thing they did as well. Oftentimes uh, women who were smuggling these books dressed like beggars and they hid these books in sacks of cheese or eggs or bread, kind of like a bindle situation. Some even used uh, tool belts and pretended to be workmen and disguised newspapers under their clothes. Like you might uh, be able to wrap your body, you know, in clothes. If you had like a kind of like layers on, you wouldn't necessarily notice that there were, you know, printed materials being concealed underneath. So by Around late in the 19th century, everyone was kind of getting in on the game because this was a way of participating in the preservation of the Lithuanian culture, which meant a lot to everybody. Again, the whole layered clothing, they would sometimes uh, pretend to be uh, overweight by stuffing the clothes with these newspapers and books. And doctors even got in on it by hiding books inside of their medical bags. 
You had farmers who were moving around, you know, grain and things like that and vegetables. Um, they would hide uh, publications in there as well. Even musicians would hide things in their in their instrument cases. Yeah, these are all common tricks for smugglers nowadays. But we have to realize that these folks weren't coming from a criminal background in the vast majority of cases. This was a life to which they were not acclimated. And they were doing it, again, I cannot emphasize this enough, for a greater good. They even set up underground schools if the authorities are keeping too much of an eye on the actual school buildings then they start teaching in churches and at homes. And they be these book smugglers become folk heroes. They become a, a national symbol. They're the face of the resistance. And the Russians are definitely after them. We, we want to introduce a guy who's a key figure in this. His name is Bishop Motileos Valentius. He had already been an historian for a long time. He had written a lot of religious and secular works in Lithuanian, and he was sometimes called the greatest Lithuanian personality in the 19th century, which is a very specific award. He's the guy who made the first large-scale attempt to get these books into the country. And he did this by, he was religiously motivated, at least in part, he wanted to publish more prayer books in the native language. So he sent some cash to Prussia across the border to create a printing press. And then in 1867, he got a bunch of priests who were in Prussia to bring the books back into Lithuania and start handing them out to locals. He was organizing this. And at first he was just doing Latin reprints of religious text. Their problem with that, of course, was it was Roman Catholic. They weigh everything in Russian, hence Cyrillic, not Latin. Mm -hmm. Lithuanian is in Latin alphabet, and or a Latin alphabet. And uh, as, as stuff grew, kind of like a way nicer version of Walter White in Breaking Bad, his operation grew and his ambitions grew in step. So he started to commission original works, and then he started to get some of his own works printed out at this press in Prussia, at this press in Prussia. And his, his team started <laughs> moving them across the border. And one thing that's interesting about this operation is because of the way it started, because of this bishop, a lot of these early smugglers were priests, which is probably not what they were thinking of when they took their vows, but they were, they were down to clown, man. They sure were, uh, to the tune of around 19,000 books that were printed in East Prussia and brought back into the country, back into Lithuania. Eleven of these smugglers, are, at the very least, uh, according to the Vintage News piece uh, and their research, were caught. It wasn't necessarily an instant death sentence, but you did get banished to a little place called Siberia, you might have heard of. Pretty brutal, basically a death sentence, if not just the most unpleasant long-term existence you could possibly imagine. And we're going to get more into that in just a little bit. But despite the, the dangers um, and, and some of the uh, negative outcomes, this movement and this resistance did grow. Valentius's own, uh, you know, kind of initial uh, group, the the Kinignasi, started to kind of shoot off into little splinter groups. Uh, and then those sort of developed into a larger smuggling organization, sort of a network. And they had uh, names uh, such as Stimulus, Rebirth, The Sprout, The Truth, Ray of Light, Compulsion, that's a weird one, uh, and The Morning Star. And they started to import books from even as far as the U.S., uh, where there was a pretty large Lithuanian-American expat population who would help with the printing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these organizations all, they kind of collaborated, but they could also act independently when needed. So they distributed textbooks, science books, fiction, sermons, folklore, you name it. They became printing houses almost. And Yes, this this was a widespread activity in its glory days, right, at its apex, but that doesn't mean it was easy. The Lithuanian border was tough to cross. There were three different lines of Russian security, much more intense than the custom agents you would run into at border crossings today. The first line was a bunch of soldiers along the border who were 
purposely distributed really densely so that they could see each other. They were like line of sight with each other. And then if you made it past that line, there was another row of soldiers, a little less intense, spread further out. And then the last line of defense, that third line, was the Russian Empire police officers. They rode around on horseback and they had a network of local informants who I think were very unethical people. If you got caught, you would get first off, you would get tied to a post and they would whip the snot out of you. This is not like a fun birthday spanking. This kind of stuff leaves scars for the rest of your life. And then you were either imprisoned in maybe in Lithuania or you were sent to Siberia. And if you tried to run, like if you somehow had a high enough constitution role to get back on your feet after you get whipped and then make a go for it, they would just shoot you in the back. Uh, they burned the Russian soldiers, that is. They burned every single book or journal that they found on the smugglers. We know that the number of smugglers caught and transported to Siberia or shot or imprisoned, it, it's kind of lost to history. Uh, the first major arrest was sometime in either 1870 or 1871. Russian forces caught and sentenced 11 members of Valencius's crew. There were uh, eight of them, five priests, a farmer, and even a noble were sent to Siberia, and the operation was compromised. So just a few years later, in 1875, he died. But in the words of uh, Che Guevara, it's like, shoot, fool, you were only killing a man, because his mission continued well after his death, thanks to totally. his thanks to his uh, mentee, his disciple. What? And that, I mean, honestly, Ben, that's that quote sums up this whole situation. You know, you, you just can't do what the Russians are trying to do without the most draconian measures, like literally genocide. Human beings are going to cling on to the things that that, that give them uh, identity. Uh, and this stuff is very deeply ingrained through generations. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's absolutely true. And so it's sort of like a, a losing battle on the Russian side. But boy, do they continue to try. But to your point, Ben, um, this message and this, you know, struggle, this uh, cause did continue and the leadership was passed on to somebody else. Valentius basically had a successor sort of already in place, uh, a guy named Jurgis Bialinis, uh, who was a Lithuanian nationalist whose father was a uh, very... Um, intense political activist. And so he kind of followed in his father's footsteps there and was ready to go. Bielinis met uh, Valencius in 1873 after uh, Bielinis graduated from a university in Latvia, in Riga, Latvia. And by that point, this resistance we've been talking about was already happening uh, in a big way. And he was, of course, uh, very ardently in favor of a Lithuanian culture and identity and those things not being wiped away by Russia. So he and uh, Valencius really hit it off. They kind of formed a pact, essentially, that they were going to band together um, and continue this preservation of the culture and the language that they both loved and felt was very, very, very important to continue. And mm -hmm. he was adamant in this cause. He said that he would not rest until, quote, the Muscovites got out of Lithuania. Mm -hmm. That's what led him to create the Garshvai Kenignashi Society in 1885. Uh, this would become the largest smuggling operation of its type in the country, and he was given the unofficial title, the King of the Book Carriers, uh, which is, no, yeah, you know what? I think it is cooler than Wallace Stevenson's Emperor of Ice Cream, though that's a great poem. So. But uh, And by the way, yeah. Muscovite just refers to people native to Moscow. Yeah, yeah. So basically he was saying he was going to do whatever it took. He was going to continue in this cause until every last Russian was gone, uh, which was not something that was very much in the cards. So basically saying almost, it was almost as if to say until I die. Yeah, and so members of the society he created Soon there were thousands of them. This was by far the biggest organization, and it had the power of the people because they crowdsourced money to get books from these publishers in Prussia, and then they started a subscription service. How cool is this? You could put some money in for the cause, 
right? And instead of just like buying guns or something for a hopelessly outnumbered militia, by the way, you are buying books. And this guy is credited with smuggling, get this folks, nearly half of all the books brought into Lithuania from East Prussia during this time. He even was smuggling to Lithuania's living in Latvia. The heat was on. The Russian authorities were hip to this guy. And by the 1890s, they put out a bounty on him. This is like the most militant reading rainbow ever. And there were several manhunts. He was able to evade capture for a long time because literally everybody except for Russians and turncoats are on his side. Again, we have to emphasize these folks aren't criminals. They're doing an act that has become criminalized by a foreign power. And at the turn of the century, while he is on the run, mind you, how badass is this? He created a Lithuanian newspaper. And if you got a subscription, he would just deliver it to you regularly. It was called the White Eagle. It was printed on one of the only presses active in Lithuania at the time. And he brought it in from Prussia. That's what I think is so cool. He said, why are we just smuggling books? I want to smuggle in an actual printing press. We're not sure exactly how he was able to pull this off, but he got it past those three lines. And he was also able to get the supplies you need to run a printing press. And then he taught, uh, taught another smuggler, a guy named Stepanus Povilionis, to work a printing press. I mean, I am, I am imprinting pressed with these guys. Yeah, it's pretty incredible because that's good, Ben. I like that. But, you know, I mean, think about it. A sprinting press is like a massive operation, a massive piece of machinery. So to smuggle it in, it would have had to come in in pieces and then be assembled. I mean, this is like difficult stuff that you can't just kind of intuitively figure out. But they uh, worked out all the logistics and they made it happen. Um, so I don't know if we mentioned, but Bialinas came from a, a, a lower class uh, background. He, he was a peasant. And through his own, you know, blood, sweat and tears and effort, he kind of ascended to the position of uh, an intellectual. And this Atlas Obscure article very aptly describes him as a defender of the Lithuanian language. But this was something that was not the most out of the ordinary thing under these extraordinary circumstances at the time, because the Russian Empire had abolished serfdom in the early 1860s. And therefore, there was this kind of new class that emerged, a class known as peasant intellectuals that kind of begun to take shape. Uh, because if you weren't just constantly having to work the land as a serf, it kind of freed up some bandwidth, to, like read and educate yourself and become something different than, than just a run of the mill, you know, manual laborer. Uh, so this became almost an unanticipated outcome of Russia taking that action, you know, getting rid of the surf class. They kind of created the groundwork for their own uh, overthrow, at least in terms of um, the uh, spread of anti-Russia information and, and the idea of uh, being able to kind of preserve the culture of these uh, invaded people. So there's a person, a writer named uh, Zygmantis Kjaupa, uh, who wrote a book called The History of Lithuania. Um, he described this class as the most faithful users of the Lithuanian language and largely occupying the majority of this, you know, book smuggling kind of contingent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, something like 86% of the smugglers were peasants. And I, I do want to amend the Russian Empire, when they were putting out their manhunts for Belenius, they caught him five times, he just kept getting away because, again, everybody who actually is Lithuanian is on his side. The Robin Hood example is pretty spot on there. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So it's the late 1800s now. These guys are getting creative. Some people are even getting the Russian police to help them. The head officer of Ariogala, there in central Lithuania, joins the smuggling conspiracy. That's really what it is. All smuggling is a conspiracy uh, in 1895. And then other people are saying, hey, there's some loopholes in this press ban. Because if we print stuff on slabs of clay, they're not considered books. So they're not <laughs> technically illegal. We're going old school with it. We mentioned the secret schools, right? We didn't mention how this is uh, tough on the kids, though. Because imagine you're a kid, your parents are basically telling you, look, now you have two schools. You have the fake school you have to go to for these Russian jerks, and then you go to real school at night at your neighbor's house. And that's where your actual education is going to happen. So, you know, look like you're paying attention during the day, but don't stress about it. Don't try. So we can well, only imagine how many kids flunked. Well, you, you say that, and, and I think there's probably some truth to that, and I know you're joking, but also, like, isn't it such a privilege that Americans have? We speak the English, we learn a second language kind of almost as, like, a luxury or, like, as, like, sort of, like, an elective, you know, in school. I know anytime I've traveled 
abroad, it is just like understood nearly that just about everyone speaks English because it is something that is just taught and it is a necessity for business in many ways. But, you know, we are so privileged in, you know, it's just not nearly as common for Americans to like speak multiple languages. But I bet a lot of these kids probably did learn Russian pretty well in addition to Lithuanian and had to kind of like hide it because honestly, I bet Ben, if they were flunking, That'd be a bad look. And I bet it might come back to visit the parents, you know, mm. if the kids weren't doing well. Yeah, if all if all the kids in class were flunking, that would be sus. But, you know, to that point, there were because this is Europe, there were probably already a lot of kids who were bilingual to some degree in Russian or maybe another language in that area. And yes, of course, the idea of a secondary extracurricular program after school is still pretty common throughout the world. Like a lot of Japanese American kids here in the U.S. go to Japanese school on the weekends, you know, and it's totally separate from whatever school they're going to for grade school through high school. But they're not forced to do this by a state power, you know, and I think that's one of the big distinctions. So now we have to ask how many books did the Russian forces at this time actually burn? or actually confiscate. We know that in one decade, 1891 to 1901, they confiscated well over 173,000 different publications. And we don't know how many books were actually printed and smuggled because we only know the ones that were caught. As a result of the illegality of the operation, you wouldn't want to keep a tally that could be easily found by the authorities because that would be a tremendous boon to them. The confiscation rate skyrocketed over the next few years, 1901 to 04. And this is why you'll see historians like the one we referenced earlier saying, if they had to guess, there could have been millions of smuggled books. Virtually every town and village had their own treasure trove of illegal books, as well as a secret Lithuanian school. And if you want kids to think school is cool, as lame in 1990s as that sounds, tell them it's secret. People love secrets, man. And uh, we know that more and more people were engaging in this conspiracy. Toward the height of it, it was kind of like the Hydra organization in Marvel comics and Marvel films because anybody could be Hydra. And you didn't really know until they leaned in and whispered like, hail Hydra. So you would see widows, farmers, doctors, musicians, like organists, traveling salesmen. You know, they would just be their regular Lithuanian selves until they leaned in and said, I've got some books. That was like their hail Hydra (laughs) moment. And I think that is awesome. But then- we see more secret newspapers. More and more people are rallying against this idea of Russification. As you can tell, fellow ridiculous historians, Russification is not going well. It might look okay to the czar on paper, but it's, it is not working. People start organizing musical get-togethers, secret plays about how awesome Lithuanian culture and language is. And then they start having these things they call picnics which look like, you know, regular picnics until you hear what people are saying. It's all about the rebirth of the Lithuanian state or the resistance against the uh, what they saw as the evil empire of Russia. So this is inspiring stuff. And it, I think eventually at some point, if we take the Russian perspective, you're going to have to say, how long are we going to keep up this ban, especially if it's not working? You know, we got like hundreds of soldiers on the border and they're obviously not great at this. Yeah, look, I mean, it kind of reminds me of like what happened with the Berlin Wall, for example, you know, where you had uh, Russia realizing that it was too expensive to maintain that uh, segregation between East and West Berlin and to maintain that iron grasp over information and controlling information and keeping tabs on everybody and all of these operations, they just balloon out of control. Um, It just seems like historically Russia has a a history of biting off a little more than they can chew in the uh, pursuit of ideology. What do you think about that, Ben? Well, it's tough because these are very, very different versions of Russia. That's why I'm pointing out the thematic commonality of underestimation, you know, with, with Ukraine. That's what I mean when I say earlier, and I agree, you know, Society should not hold 
the current government of Russia responsible for the actions of Tsarist Russia. It's very, very different. But oh, for sure. But yeah, there's there's a failure to uh, <laughs> to really understand the vibe here and the war or the objections, the resistance against this ban is being fought in legal channels too. It's not all just book smuggling, although that's probably the coolest part of the story. People were organizing actual petitions to the Russian empire and the Russian government would receive these requests that would say, you know, stuff like we, the people of this village or some sort of constituency would like to end the ban on the Lithuanian language. We're just asking you through legal channels. And eventually the tide turns, not in Lithuania, but in Russia. Russian intellectuals are saying, what's the point of this ban? We didn't really define it. People are still writing and speaking and reading in Lithuanian. They're just using clay tablets because whoever wrote this law didn't understand how to define stuff. 1897. The Council of Ministers in Russia says, okay, this is officially a failure. 1904, they retire the ban. They end it. Uh, they're trying to reconcile with military groups because something else is happening. They need more support from anything affiliated with the Russian Empire because they're in the Russian-Japanese War. But it's too little, too late. Lithuanians are not having it. You know what I mean? And our guy here... Belinus, he starts talking more and more about being fully independent from Russia. He becomes like, you know, we, we kind of say he was always an ardent nationalist. Now he is like a spokesman for Lithuania. And he is one of the driving forces for the active independence of Lithuania in February 1918. Unfortunately, and this is one of the um, sad ironies that happens so often in history, he passed away the month before. He died in January 1918 before he saw the legislation he had fought so hard for come to pass. But then on a lighter note, imagine you're a book smuggler. Imagine you're one of the teachers or a member of the clergy and you got all these books, all these secret cool books. And now the book ban is lifted. You're book rich. What are you going to do? Do people still want books? I don't know. How do you move all these books? You got like a hundred copies of, uh, I don't know. You got a hundred copies of the New Testament in Lithuanian or in Latin or whatever. What do you do? Well, uh, you could open a bookshop. Hey. That'd be cool. And not only would it just be a bookshop, you know, with all this inventory. I mean, it's essentially an incredible foundation to start a long-lasting legacy historical bookshop. Uh, and this place exists. In 1905, right after the ban was lifted, one of the smugglers, a dude named Joasis Masiulis, um, opened such a store in Panivsius. And again, apologies for butchering these pronunciations. And it's still open today. And it is actually part of a chain of bookstores um, that have since sprung up in Lithuania under the same name. So in 1928, to further honor the legacy of this period, a statue was built in the capital at the time was the capital uh, of uh, Kiwanis. And that was uh, to commemorate the placard read the unknown book smuggler more of like a symbolic thing to talk about the people who we will never know their names because we only really have a handful of figures because like you said, Ben, the record keeping was a little wonky. So cool. So today in Lithuania, uh, March 16th is the birthday of Jurgis Bielinis um, and it is celebrated as Kiegnesio Diena, which is translated to the day of the book smugglers or carriers, depending on um, your preference. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And that's... Um, pretty big deal. Yeah, that's why we opened with this. So a happy day of the book smugglers. Uh, happy belated Kignosio Dena to all who celebrate. I think, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm celebrating this now. I think saving things through the power of literacy is awesome. That's one of the reasons that people like me end up in things like podcasts. At this point, maybe we give the last word to Jonas Stepshish, who talked about his father and his uncle uh, as book smugglers, he says smuggling is the reason, or one of the primary reasons, Lithuania was able to regain independence when he writes, 
The struggles of the book carriers have been praised in modern times by people like Father Euolonius Kasparavicius, who said the work of restoring Lithuania's independence began not in 1918, when it declared itself a state, but rather at the time of the book carriers. With bundles of books and pamphlets on their backs, these warriors were the first to start preparing the ground for independence, the first to propagate the idea that it was imperative to throw off the yoke of Russian oppression. So pretty cool. And also, you know, kudos to Tsarist Russia because their miscalculation about banning a language in a very real way set the dominoes toppling, right? That's what led to Lithuania's ultimate independence. I think it's a cool lesson. I know we went a little bit long on this one, but we hope you enjoyed it as well, folks. And we can't wait to hear from you. What are some other awesome acts of literacy as rebellion or literacy as resistance? I would say the um, Still Yaga are up there. Music literacy is the same as print right. literacy. Uh, and there are a lot of examples about these. Can't wait to hear about them. Yeah, you can hit us up on the internet. Uh, we're Ridiculous Historians on Facebook. That's the name of our Facebook group. A lot of good meme activity and uh, chatter there around the shows that we do every week. You can also uh, find Ben and I as individual human people on the internet. I am uh, pretty much exclusively on Instagram, where you can find me at How Now Noel Brown. Mr. Bolin, how about yourself? Well, Mr. Brown, fellow Ridiculous Historians, you can indeed find me on the internet. The rumors are true. I've got a, a lot of exciting stuff coming up that I can't yet announce on air, but get in on the ground floor. Follow me at Ben Bolin, B-O-W-L-I-N on Instagram. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at Ben Bolin HSW. That's a great place to send suggestions for episodes and questions. Great place to send terrible puns. I love them. Hashtag no pun left behind. Bonus, if you're on Twitter, you may also catch the one and only Mr. Max Williams. Yes, it is I, Mr. Max Williams. You can find me on Twitter at, at ATL underscore Max Williams, where you'll see all my fun interests and stuff. And Max may end up also throwing us for a curl ball in the near future. Not a curveball. That's no other spoilers. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's but, a curling reference, right? <laughs> no spoilers. It's the one with the big, uh, it's the one with the smooth stones that you used to move around uh, Ice thingies. Pucks? What do you call them, Matt? Give, give, give us the skinny. What, uh, what they are, are rocks. Okay. They are rocks. Throwing okay. rocks. Throwing rocks with Max Williams on the, the curling field well, there, of play. On the sheet of ice. Yeah. Uh, yes, the sheet of ice, of course. How could I be so foolish? Yeah, still brooms. And there there are... Uh, that didn't totally... Uh, didn't totally cripple the spoiler, so uh, just stay tuned on that. I'm sticking with the curlball thing, but yeah, thanks to Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to Casey Pegram. I looked at my old Casey on the Case t-shirt, man. It's still, it's still a good idea. <laughs> Classic shirt. Classic shirt. Vintage at this point. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.